Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. share with you some stories about the wild life, both great and small, on Masitwi Farm. I think it's important because I do talk about it quite a lot. And although this is not a chapter in my book, I think uh, you might find some of these little stories quite amusing. By now, I was a boarder. I had moved away from Rafangora, and I was a boarder with my brother and sister at the Mbukwe's Junior School. And every exit weekend, we would pile out of the car dusty and disheveled. I mean, I don't know what it is about the cars we had. Even hermetically sealed, those dirt roads left us with a fine layer of dust. Anyway, I digress. As soon as we got home, we would pile out, covered in dust, to be greeted by our staff. Well, look, it wasn't exactly Downton Abbey. We only had two household staff at that stage. Fred, the cook boy, always received a big hug, and Conda, the gentle giant of a houseboy, a traditional African handshake. Then we would all rush through to the back door to count the monkey and baboon tails nailed to the back wall. The crops were always in danger from marauding troops of vervet monkeys who would raid the maize fields, causing a huge amount of damage. And the baboons, well, they just seemed to eat anything, even the tobacco. God knows, they will probably all hooked on the nicotine. My father employed a gun boy. To call him a gamekeeper or a gilly would be, well, to be total buffoonery. The gun boy was generally an ancient man of retirement age, armed with a clapped-out old 303 rifle, held together with some limbo or tree bark. These solitary gun boys normally lived away from the rest of the workers, and... They had to be kind of solitary people. They looked as wild as the beasts they shot at. In fact, as I recall, once the 303 had finally packed up, my dad armed his gun boy with a bow and arrow. To supplement his poultry wage, he would also get paid for each kill, whether it was a wild pig, a baboon, or a monkey. No other wildlife was permitted on the kill list. Every day he would bring us the tails of the monkeys he had shot and hang them up to be counted at the end of the month. I suppose he ate the monkey, we never asked. But the tails hanging up outside the kitchen was like some sort of grisly southern comfort horror movie. But, of course, much to us kids' delight. Sometimes the gun boy would surprise us with the tusks of a wild boar 
or the skull of a huge dog baboon as three-inch canines snarling menacingly from its jawbone. Now, three-inch, I'm telling you, is the norm. Baboons are dangerous. We all knew this. Not just dangerous, but clever as well. And back then, they were everywhere. The gun boy had rigged up an alarm system with tin cans, which he beat whenever the baboons came down from the copies to raid the maze. One day, he went to fetch his tin can contraption, only to find, and according to him, the baboons had stolen it. Even those baboons found the cacophony too much to bear. Back then, we had troops of 40 or 50, maybe more, which roamed the land like gangs of thugs, barking and snarling and generally making a nuisance of themselves. When I was just three years old, we heard the echoing bark of the baboons down at the bottom of the hill. They always had a very mesmerizing, haunting bark. My sister Mandy and brother Duncan and I, unaccompanied by any adults, decided to go and have a look. Now, even as an adult, this was an incredibly stupid, dangerous thing to do. I mean, I was three years old, Mandy was five, and Duncan was six. My parents were no doubt having their afternoon kip and almost certainly were unaware. Many a man had been torn to pieces by baboons, and back then they would come right up to the garden perimeter. And yet there we were. There I was, barefoot and shirtless, my favorite red shorts pulled up on a crooked angle. I waddled down after my brother and sister. It was about half a mile from the house, and suddenly we immediately found ourselves completely surrounded by the troop. They were in the trees, amongst the rocks, on the ground, and the huge males bearing their massive fangs and barking, lunging in mock attacks and slowly beginning to totally hem us in. There were lots of baby baboons, and ooh, that was never a good thing. Now, Mandy was a brave little kid, far braver than Duncan or I, but on this occasion, even this was too much. My brave siblings turned and fled, leaving me on my own. I was a tough little bugger, but honestly no amount of bravado was going to save my bacon this time. I was alone, far from home, away from any adults who could help me. Barefoot and barely out of a nappy. Naturally, there was only one thing for it. I prayed to the fairies. And as my mother likes to remind me, the fairies listened. But that, people, is another story. Next to our cottage, we had a swimming pool. The original version was a large oblong thing that seemed to attract hundreds of frogs and every insect and spider for miles about. Standing with your feet on the bottom, squidging down on dead insects or trying to swim around slimy strands of, of frog spawn 
Well, wasn't quite such a fabulous thing. Get out of the house and go and have a bloody swim, my dad would shout. Damn kids, the things we build for them. I envisaged my parents and their friends all sitting around the pool, glistening with ombre solaire, Cinzano's or fruit punch in hand, whilst they watched us youngsters frolic in the thing they built for the kids. Occasionally, we even encountered the odd snake that had fallen in and could not get up the steep steps. Later in life, Mum installed a beautiful, trendy, kidney-shaped pool with Grecian pillars and a naked cherub piddling into the water. Or was it a dolphin? I can't really remember. For some reason, thank God, this pool seemed to stay clean and insect-free. But then the inside of the house was no less insect-free. Trust me, during the Bush War, most homes installed security lights outside their houses. These were generally left on in the evening until bedtime, I suspect more often for decorative reasons than anything else. They did light up the garden and make them look quite pretty. But this is Africa, and... These lights attracted millions of chochos, or bugs. One hot October, I went up to my room and was horrified to find a ghastly tableau on my net curtains of crawling, creeping insects, all illuminating into grotesque, giant proportions across the walls of my room by the lights outside. Literally, there were hundreds of bugs, rose beetles, crickets, daddy long legs, mozzies, and naturally, the predators, huge, hideous, hairy spiders, rain spiders, baboon spiders, and hunting spiders, their moving shadows thrown across the bedroom walls like an insane Balinese shadow dance as they crept up stealthily towards their prey. At the base of the net curtains, a pile of crawling insects like some gruesome vision of hell. Some had been half-eaten, most were alive on their backs, clicking and crawling and making a noise. Now, there are those of us who don't give a toss about insects, and for the most part, neither do I. Yes, I'm an arachnophobe, to the ninth degree. I'll scream at the sight of a harmless rain spider. And then there are those, like my mother, who can lie on the carpet watching telly and simply lift her legs to allow the passage of a large, fanged, hairy hunting spider to swiftly dash across the room in search of its prey. But even on this occasion, both parents were in agreement with me. The sight was truly grotesque. Needless to say, I still had to sleep in the room. Mortified as I listened to the magnified crunching and clicking sounds of rose beetles that crept beneath my pillowcase and sounded as if they were about to crawl into my ears. Oh, it was a very long night. It was a very long October. 
For years, we had a bush baby that lived in the trees outside my window. These tiny, cute apes are nocturnal and no doubt were after the insects that were attracted to the lights. They must have been bloody fat, I tell you. But bush babies also have the most terrifying, piercing scream, which sounds similar to someone boiling a baby. Often we would shoot bolt upright in bed and in a cold sweat, thinking we had awoken into some Stephen King horror novel. But not all wildlife in the house were quite so scary. For years we had a family of African civet cats living in a huge ancient bougainvillea on the veranda. Their small furry banded faces occasionally peeping over to have a squiz at us. I guess they were like the raccoons of Africa. Other denizens included toads and frogs, which my mum hated because they attracted snakes. I'm going to talk about snakes in another episode. We once tried to have peacocks and bought a pea hen and a cock from a neighbour. As beautiful as they were, their alarming screeching was also a bit of a nightmare. The hen was eventually killed by a python, as I recall, and the cock didn't last much longer. All we found were his feathers scattered around the lawn one morning, the telltale signs still fluttering on the lips of the rather sheepish-looking dogs. There were bigger critters on the farm. For example, we had leopards on the farm. Enough for them to be considered pests back in the day. Of course, we adored having these beautiful cats around, but when occasionally one would go rogue and kill a calf, we had to do something about it. My father took me on my first and only leopard hunt when I was just four years old. A calf had been killed. The cattle boys had found the fresh kill about two miles from our house, at first, my dad set up a trap. It was his own creation, a, a, like a, a teepee or a wigwam-style hut made of sticks. Inside, he would place the carcass that had been killed by the leopard. Then hanging from the top of the teepee would be a gun, generally the same old beat-up 303, with a fishing line attached to the trigger and down across the entrance of the teepee like a tripwire. The idea was that the leopard would walk into the hut, tripping the wire and getting shot in the head. As unlikely as this might appear, it actually did work and we had skins on our walls to prove it. There's an old faded picture, and I might have mentioned this before, possibly from around 1966, of me leaning against a dead leopard that had been shot in a trap only a few hundred yards from the home. I'm holding a rifle taller than I was. On this particular occasion, the trap hadn't worked, so we decided to find the leopard's lair and lie in wait. It was early evening and the female leopard was in her cave. We lay in wait on a flat piece of granite about 50 yards from the lair. 
the sun began to set and the bush around me began to grow dark, the crickets began to chirp, night jars calling and a jackal yelped in the distance. This was Mazindarindi Valley, the old part of the farm, haunting and also haunted and terribly beautiful. The original inhabitants were the San Bushmen who left their rock paintings all around the caves on the farm, some believed to be as old as 2,000 years or up to 15,000 years in some cases. Also nearby were old rock walls and enclosures built by Bantu some 200 or 300 years before as protection against marauding Matabili an Arab and Portuguese mulatto or pambiros slave traders. These rock walls used no mortar and were incredibly beautifully constructed. As an adult, I would have found this place full of ghosts. As a child, lying in wait for a leopard, well, it was debilitating. I could almost hear the battle cries of Zulu impis as they slaughtered the men and raped the women. Or the clinking of the chains as the yoked slaves were hauled across the continent to satisfy the hunger of sugar barons in the new world. And here I was, lying on a cold rock, listening to the grunting of a pissed-off leopard cornered in a cave. The smell of cat piss was pungent and stung the nostrils. Inevitably, I needed to have a pee. I looked around me, but my limbs wouldn't budge. I was frozen to the spot. Soon, the warm trickle of urine coursed down my legs and across the rock. My father looked across at me and raised an eyebrow. We were under strict instructions not to make a sound. I was mortified. After a while, it became obvious that the leopard wasn't coming out, and she lived to see another day, thank God. As for me, my pissing my pants caused endless mirth with my father, his gunboy, and his pals. It was the last leopard hunt I was invited on, much to my hidden delight. But what father takes their four-year-old son on a leopard hunt? As a teenager, I rarely hunted for food and certainly not for sport. I hunted to escape. Part of me wanted to please my father, but that was a tough act to follow, let's be honest. Mostly I hunted because I loved the bush. I loved the absolute, utter immersion into nature and to be far away from rules and regulations and whatever people call the norm. I was going through a hard time with my dad and never seemed to do anything right. Typical teenager stuff. With Bella, my dog, as my sole companion, we would walk and hunt unsuccessfully 
for hours on end, imagining myself as Sir Percy Fitzpatrick and his little terrier, Jock, traipsing across the bushveld. If Jock belonged to the little people, Bella belonged entirely, lovingly and uncompromisingly to me. Together we would ford rivers, climb copies, lie on our tummies and crawl beneath fissures to stare or sniff at Bushman paintings or lie on our backs, me tickling Bella's tummy as we gazed at a pair of black eagles soaring miles above. I swear Bella was human. I once shot an eagle. I know, not my finest hour. I think it was an African crowned eagle, Stephanitis coronatus, such a beautiful and rare bird and largely accepted as Africa's most powerful eagle, known to feed off prey as large as a bushbuck. It was horrific. It died like the prima donna it knew it was, squeaking and croaking and flapping as it broke through the canopy of branches then slowly and painfully fell to earth with a ghastly thud. Nothing prepared me for this. I wish I could have taken it back. I don't even know what possessed me to snuff the life from such a magnificent creature. And death is messy. My father was, naturally, not very impressed although I did lop off his or her massive talons, which I kept beside my bed, next to my other miserable trophies, as a stark reminder to leave the hunting to the big boys. You know, Pete, my dad said, taking me aside in a rare moment of tenderness, you don't have to be a hunter. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I remember thanking him, jumping for joy inside, knowing that never again would I have to try and prove myself as a killer to this man who had made his life out of the African bush. The African bush. Sadly, this idyllic life was already changing. Even as a child back in 1964, the first incursions by a notorious group called the Crocodile Gang began terrorizing homes in the eastern highlands. The Bush War had begun. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye. Goodbye.